brace yourself because you're about to dive into another free first hour episode of the Higher Side Chats. And we just want to let you know that whether you're looking for a companion through your paranoid insomnia, entertaining yourself through one of life's mundane activities, or trying to ward off the internal screams of all those sad, smothered souls around the office, THC is here. And you should know that every episode of the Higher Side Chats has an entire second hour for Plus members. Sign up at thehiresidechatsplus.com and you'll get years of Plus show archives, lifetime forum access, a special invite to Greg Carlwood's monthly joint sessions, MP3s of THC music, bonus episodes, tour videos, and 10% off t-shirts, grinders, and whatever else ends up in the Higher Side store. It's $8 a month that you won't miss. So become a Plus member and treat yourself in these troubled times. Always action-packed and commercial-free, which means you'll unfortunately never hear my voice again. In the 1930s, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. Well, we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Higher Side Chats. Here we go, Higher Side Chatters, taking a break from the day-to-day slip into some nightmarish digital dystopia from sunny San Diego. I'm Greg Carlwood. And one of the very important threads we've been following is that of ether physics, alternative energy devices, and the suppressed science that could revolutionize the world if we could only lift the corporate quarantine that's been placed over the layers of reality that open such doors. We've talked about bright minds in the past who promoted the importance of systems thinking, experimented with strange qualities of electricity, found some curious ways to harness the ether, developed over-unity energy devices, and even unlocked the powers of electromagnetism and anti-gravity. And the deeper we've gone into these areas, the stranger it gets, with implications that reorganize our thoughts on consciousness, biology, non-human intelligence, energy abundance, and even the structure of reality itself. And in the later stages of these conversations, we've talked to previous guests about the curious nature of self-organizing plasmas and their strange effects. Like Eric Dollard's cosmic induction generator experiment, which seemed to produce emerging plasma galaxies inside of a closed vacuum, or our hidden energy show with Gene Manning and Susan Manowich that touched on the impressive work of Ken Shoulders. Well, recently we had Richard Dolan here, and our UFO conversation also veered into the plasma space, and while he didn't feel qualified to comment much personally, he did say he knew someone much more knowledgeable on the subject, and true to his word, Richard got us linked up, he's been teaching me a lot in the past week, and wouldn't you know it, that someone is here with us today. If you followed Richard's work on the very important Wilson memo regarding government interest in UFOs, you might have heard him mention the detailed analysis of the memo done by a person known as Kosh. And it is Kosh who also happens to know a great deal about alternative energy and just where plasmas fit in. Of course, he would say a better, more specific term than plasmas would be exotic vacuum objects, or EVOs, but we'll get into that. Just to set the stage, let it be known that Kosh has been studying cold fusion and exotic energy technologies for the past 15 years, and UFOs even longer. As he said to me, he's going to soon be stepping away from this kind of all-consuming research, but is willing to tell us what he knows before dedicating his brain space to other things. 
here to fill in the gaps of our esoteric energy knowledge and further our understanding in a way that very few can actually do, the Evo educator himself, the mysterious and anonymous Kosh. Welcome to the higher side. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Man, well, I'm happy to have you. Thanks so much for doing this. I always like to try to give the listeners as much introductory context as I can. And I also definitely understand the desire to mentally move on. But this is something I couldn't miss to get this information on the record and hopefully push our understanding of reality into new territory. Maybe it'll even be a little cathartic for you. But to kick this off, I know this stuff is really complex. How would you like to introduce Evos to the people? Well, um, in short, an Evo could be considered a form of self-organizing plasma. Basically, it's a combination of electrons and ions that configure potentially into a torus, into a structure that has an interior of positive ions and an exterior of electrons. And somehow it can interact with the vacuum or the ether, the zero point energy field, um, the electron positron C, whatever you want to call that all pervasive medium. Somehow it can manipulate that to produce a wide range of anomalies. Hmm. Very cool. Very cool. And I'm sure this is going to be new for a lot of people. Some aspect I hoped you could elaborate on pretty early here was that you said through your continued study, you realized that the Evo phenomena is ubiquitous in nature. Where can people see this just so they could get a better idea or a visual to wrap their heads around where we might see this in the natural world? Well, for example, whenever there's a spark discharge, an EVO is created for a brief moment. It may be only transitory and exist for a microsecond or less. But if you are wearing socks and you rub your feet on the carpet and you touch a um, doorknob made of metal, you could generate an EVO with that spark discharge. Or if um, you see ball lightning, that's an example of um, an EVO. Or, for example, even lightning itself. They, people who have analyzed lightning, such as Kenneth Shoulders, who we'll, we'll be talking about in a few minutes, he analyzed videos of lightning. And a lightning bolt is actually led by an initial um, organized plasma that precedes the main current flow. So there's many different ways to see um, EVOs. Um, also, we're going to touch on this in a little bit, but if you go online and look at the work of the Sapphire Project, that's a um, group based in Canada near Toronto, I believe, um, they are producing a self-organizing plasma in their reactor that wraps around a central spherical anode and it produces a beautiful plasma display and they are able to produce massive excess energy. They're able to produce all sorts of anomalies. Um, so there's, there's ways to observe it in real life. Um, but I would say that once we continue along in this conversation, people will get a better idea of what we're talking about. Fair, fair. And yes, we're going to get into Kenneth R. Shoulders. And also for people who have looked at the hidden energy, alternative energy devices seen in the past, you made a great point to me that it seems that many of the inventors who have made these devices in the ether physics alternative energy scene 
They have said that they really don't know how it works often, or they've mentioned that there's a mechanism that they don't understand, but here it is. You know, they can show numbers that kind of break our traditional physics, but even they are often in the dark about every part of the process. And you think EVOs is that missing factor that so many have stumbled upon, but haven't really been able to wrap their heads around. Yes, I think EVOs are that missing factor in a multitude of different exotic technologies going back all the way to Tesla. Basically, whenever you have out of equilibrium um, conditions in a plasma environment, you will produce EVOs. Um, It goes all the way back to Nikola Tesla. There's a whole list of inventors we will touch upon tonight that um, looking back, if you understand this phenomenon, they were utilizing the EVO phenomena. They may not have even recognized it as the EVO phenomena. They would not have had, in some cases like Nikola Tesla, he would not have known that his spark gaps were producing EVOs. But he was utilizing some of the same principles as Kent's shoulders with his EVO generators. Um, We'll go into a lot of details of this in a little bit, but EVOs can be transitory, they can be um, long-lasting and self-sustaining, and they can take different forms, and they can also scale from little tiny EVOs, for example, in cavitation-based systems where you have lots of bubbles in a liquid to try to produce excess excess energy, such as, let's say, an HHO generator or Brown's gas generator. The little um, cavitation bubbles produce EVOs or, you know, in a big spark gap system. Like in a Tesla coil, you're producing EVOs, and they can serve as a way of producing a gain of energy, um, either by inducing what's called cold fusion effects, uh, also known as LENR, which stands for low energy nuclear reactions, or perhaps by tapping and interacting with the zero-point energy field itself. Hmm. I love it. I love it. And let's talk more about Ken Shoulders and tell the people who he was and what was so important about his discoveries, because he was a pretty unique guy, even within the alternative energy community, wouldn't you say? Well, Ken Shoulders, before he ever got into the alternative energy field or his EVO research, he was a brilliant inventor. He was mostly self-educated. I believe he did get a high school diploma, but after that, I believed Um, He was mostly self-educated, but he became an engineer. Um, He worked at SRI, Stanford Research Institute, I believe, um, if I'm getting that correct. And he invented um, several different devices which helped with the manufacture of, for example, computer chips. He became known in the not the alternative energy field, but just the mainstream field as the father of vacuum microelectronics due to the breakthroughs and inventions he produced. Um, So he was fairly well known in that community before he ever had anything to do with anything exotic. So um, he had had a successful long career before he ever got involved. Also, what's interesting to say about Kenneth Radford's shoulders, and that's his middle name, by the way, Radford. So it's Kenneth Radford's shoulders is that he was a big aviation buff, and he built um, gyrocopters and other prototype flying vehicles and models of flying vehicles that he would build and test and experiment with. Um, So he was a very interesting guy um, 
But then around 1980, um, he met up with Dr. Harold Putoff at SRI, and he started a collaboration to investigate this EVO phenomenon. And basically, he um, his earliest systems were very simple. He would have a sharpened cathode, which is the negative electrode of a, for example, a spark gap. And then he would have an anode on the other side, and there would be a gap in between. And he would pulse the system with a very short duration voltage. And what would happen is that the sharp tip would magnify the electric field. And it would cause a little tiny explosion at the tip of the cathode. And later he would find a way to protect the cathode that we'll discuss. But it would produce a little explosion, and there would be a plasma discharge. And so you would have a soup an ionic soup of ions and electrons and little nanoparticles that came off the tip of the cathode. And out of this, the motion of the electrons and positively charged ions would produce a magnetic field from their very motion. And this would produce a self-organization effect that would bring the ions and electrons into an actual structure and it would be most likely a vortex, a toroidal-type structure. And he quickly experimented with this, um, testing all different types of materials. He started you know, different cathode materials, different um, target plates he'd put in front of the anode. He um, determined very quickly that they produce characteristic track marks, both on um, cathodes that they were emitted from and where they hit or struck a target. He discovered that EVOs have many unique and highly anomalous properties, such as when they strike an anode, a target plate, they will transmute elements that he was able to measure. Um, they also produce some sort of warp drive effect because they produce a field around themselves that allowed him to accelerate them to very high speeds, a you know a tiny fraction of the speed of light with very low input power. And he was able to measure this and calculate that he was accelerating them for way, way less energy um, than should be required to achieve that speed. Um, so they were basically negating a huge portion of their mass and inertia to be accelerated that way. Um, he was also learned how to really manipulate these EVOs. And the ones he was producing was on the small scale. He loved working with small things. Um, and so these were on the order of a few microns in diameter. And he built a custom pinhole electron camera to watch these and to record them. And he was able to split EVOs into multiple ev smaller EVOs. He was able to recombine them. He learned how to make them go into different modes. For example, there's a white mode in which they are highly visible and are spraying out electrons, which he was able to detect. And there's also a black mode in which they are only very weakly observable um, or can go completely invisible. And yet he was also able to reactivate them to switch them back and forth from a black mode, which could be considered, let's say, a cloaking mode. Um, to a very highly interactive white mode. Um, also, he was able to make them jump over little gaps. You know, I'm talking about on little tiny tracks that he would produce. You know, some of these systems were very, very small. Um, 
He also discovered that they could um, gouge um, tracks in materials and literally atomize the material, um, make them travel a distance, carry the material a distance, and then spray out the material at another location. Um, he was able to do all kinds of things with these EVOs. Um, and he continued his research and he discovered even more and more. He started being able to produce them um, in plasmas, for example, with um, electromagnetic stimulation, utilizing radio frequencies or microwaves. He could generate um, EVOs. And the reason that they could be produced with radio frequencies and microwave frequencies is because these EVOs have an interior layer of positive ions. And on the outer layer of, let's say, the donut, imagine a donut-shaped torus. On the outer layer, you would have electrons that are tightly packed together like Cooper pairs, which have superconducting properties. So it makes the EVO an ideal resonance chamber. So it will absorb that energy um, to feed the EVO. Um, so do you have any questions at this point? Anything <laughs> I can um, answer? Before I continue, well, sure. I mean, this is all fascinating. You know that I'm really interested in that aspect of them possibly being conscious or showing some kind of intelligence. If we're calling these things also, uh, sometimes they're referred to as those self organizing plasmas. I mean, self organizing kind of implies that it has some kind of intelligence or something. You mentioned Ken being able to make them follow tracks or split apart, recombine or jump over obstacles. And of course, these are like microscopic little plasma balls that are, Yes. I guess he worked with things that are like one to 10 microns in size. Yes. But he also, as you told me, speculated that Evos in space under the right circumstances could evolve into sentient life forms at a rate far faster than organic beings such as ourselves. And I guess I just wanted to ask you a little bit more about how EVOs are like life forms. Is there more that can be said on that? Oh, yeah. There's a good bit that can be said about that. Well, you know, people have produced, there's been a lot of research, um, not necessarily in the mainstream about the energy production aspects, but just about the characteristics of EVOs. And there's many different names for EVOs. That's one thing that's very important to get across. Um, EVO stands for exotic vacuum objects. Um, his earliest name for these were just EVs, which was Latin for strong electron. I think it was like electron validum, which is which stood for strong electron in Latin. But also other people have called them by different names. They've been called cathode spots. They have been called, I think, erzions by the Russians. They have been called, you know, one name is a spheromac. You can also call them plasmoids. You can call them um, a bunch of different names. There's probably a couple of dozen that I can't recall because they have been discovered and basically researched and then um, ignored or allowed to fade to obscurity and then reinvented and discovered again over and over and over again in the past hundred years. Um, but what's interesting is that they scientists have done experiments and I'm talking about larger scale. I mean, this would be applicable to the small scale, too, because that's a unique aspect of EVO phenomenon and plasmas in general, any plasma construct that's produced can scale in size from nearly the atomic to the galactic. Plasma can scale 
at any level. And but, you know, in laboratories where they might produce plasmoids, you know, I'm just making up a, a figure here, but, you know, let's see an inch in diameter. Um, they have determined that these EVOs can um, intake nutrients, you know, energy from the environment, electrons from the environment, ions from the environment, like food, like they're eating like an organism. They can emit ions from themselves, just like they were excreting waste. They can grow. They can um, become larger. They can increase in self-organization. They can divide to reproduce. They can potentially even communicate with each other because EVOs generate a variety of different electromagnetic radiation, including non-traditional um, types of electromagnetic radiation like longitudinal waves, which are not transverse, but instead are a series of rarefactions and compressions of the ether. So they can produce longitudinal waves, so they can communicate. Um, and so they have characteristics of life forms. And if they are in, if, you know, somewhere in space, if there is a nebula somewhere um, or maybe even a planetary environment that was favorable where they had an abundance of energy and they um, had the correct food and the conditions to sustain them, it's possible they could evolve into some type of purely plasma based life form and do so very quickly. And um, we're going to get into a little bit more about um, his writings in a little bit. But in some of the essays Kenneth Shoulders posted online, um, he discussed this possibility um, about how that this could, you know, EVOs. I'm not saying every EVO in nature is alive, is sentient, is intelligent, but it's possible that there have been places in the galaxy or even our own solar system or maybe even our own atmosphere in certain locations where EVOs have self-organized and developed some level of intelligence. Hmm. I love it. You even mentioned to me that possibly when people see orbs of light, those could be EVO-based life forms. Well, there's many possibilities. Those could be some type of electromagnetic probe from a physical-based craft that is nearby. For example, a UFO could you, you know, could emit when I say UFO, I mean a nuts and bolts saucer or triangle or physical craft could emit like a plasma ball that it can communicate with as a type of probe. Or it's possible, I mean, this is just plausible that some of these plasma balls or orbs that people see that they claim to have telepathic communication with, which of course is plausible, um, because, you know, we have electrical double layers in our brain and in our neurons that in some ways have properties similar to the electrical double layers of EVOs. So it's possible that, you know, humans could communicate with these um, types of plasma structures. They could be some type of intelligence. These orbs could, you know, maybe have evolved somewhere um, on this planet and occasionally interact with people. Um, you know, I like to conjecture that possibly the human soul is a type of EVO, basically a organized plasma. And it may be a type of, you know, there may be other types of self-organizing plasma that we just haven't observed yet that's purely in the ether that doesn't have a side that we can observe all the time. So it's possible we're actually 
EVOs ourselves at the most basic level of our soul. I mean, that's a little bit of a stretch, but it's plausible. I do love it. That's very provocative. And you mentioned the variety of terms that are used, which it's already super complex to me, and that only makes it more difficult. But I have had some guests who would talk about electricity and ether almost interchangeably, almost as if electricity is just the visible ether when you bring it over here. Because if you think of our reality as woven with this background fabric of energy, it almost seems like electricity and ether could be synonymous. And you're saying that we see one of these exotic vacuum objects every time there's a discharge. Can you maybe talk to us about the relationship between the EVOs, ether, and even consciousness? Because some people think consciousness is woven into that background fabric, and that could be why these things sometimes seem intelligent on their own and can just suddenly emerge. I'm curious how those three components interact, consciousness, ether, and EVOs. Okay, well, let's take that one step at a time. <laughs> and remember that question because um, I like to answer every question to the best of my ability. And that was a few questions in a row. So let me try to answer the first part of it. There's a difference between electricity and a flow of ether. Um, I would define um, what we call electricity. The mainstream calls electricity as the movement of charged particles. For example, um, electrons in a, in a wire. Um, the movement of those electrons is what the mainstream would define as electricity. Um, however, um, what's important to do, if you really want to understand the nature of electricity and its relationship to the ether, you have to go all the way back to Maxwell, who was one of the original electrodynamicists um, in the 1800s. And he basically came up with his original Maxwell equations. And in these equations, in his theory, and a lot of people believe this back then, and many people still do, it's not mainstream anymore, but people still believe this, that the universe is filled with an ether, that there is a universal medium that pervades everything. And in his original electromagnetic equations, um, he had what was called a scalar potential, and a vector potential. If you want to visualize what these are, imagine that you are near a river, a flowing river, and you jump into the river. And let's imagine that you can hold your breath a very long time. So you're underneath the surface of the river. The pressure of the water all around your body would be the scalar potential of the ether. Okay, it's like the pressure you would feel all around you from the water. The vector potential would be the movement of the water. Okay, um, I don't like to use the term current um, because it can get confusing, but the motion of the water, the current in the river that's flowing is the vector potential because it has a specific direction. Um, and basically, according to his original theories, the electric field and the magnetic field were just different manifestations of the vector potential. And the scalar potential, but mainly, but most importantly, the vector potential. And, but what happened was that later on, um, Oliver Heaviside, he gutted Maxwell's equations and to shorten them so they would be easier to use. He used a simpler form of math. 
um, that more ordinary electricians that just want to wire up cities and houses and buildings could use. So he gutted the equations, but horribly, um, although the idea of the ether had already been falling out of vogue at the time, he dismissed the reality, the physical reality of the vector and scalar potentials and claimed that they were just mathematical abstractions. And he self-professed to have, quote, murdered the vector potential because he despised it to such a degree in the equations. However, the primary driver of electric fields, um, both motional and static, and magnetic fields is the vector potential. So let's say you have a wire of a conductive material, let's say copper, um, and you run a magnet past it. What in the, mag in the permanent magnet um, has a magnetic field. What's a magnetic field? It's defined as the curl, okay, the curl um, of the vector potential. And the magnetic field lines of a permanent magnet, for example, if you put it on a table with iron filings, the field lines um, are actually, consider them as like tornadoes of vector potential. So it's little tight thin spiraling tornadoes is what a magnetic field line on iron filings is really composed of. So um, when you are moving the magnet across the wire, there's really no such thing as a magnetic field in reality. We just call it a magnetic field to describe the motion of the ether, of the vector potential. And that's what vector potential is, motion of the ether. And so when you run it across the, um, the wire, it moves the electrons that are the charged particles that are in the um, copper wire. And so you could, and there's other ways of, you know, an electric field, you know, because a electric field, according to mainstream science, is a magnetic field. Um, it results when a, there's a change of a magnetic field. However, um, if you look at the Maxwell Lodge effect, you can demonstrate that you can produce an EMF, an electromotive force, in, that, in a loop of copper wire when there is no magnetic field present. In this experiment, you would have a solenoid of copper wire that would be um, significantly long. And what most people don't realize is in, a, in what's called an ideal solenoid, um, on the exterior of the solenoid, there's not supposed to be any magnetic field detectable. In real life, there is one, but it's very, very, very weak. So imagine a long solenoid, and you put a, a second wire, a hoop of wire, um, on the middle exterior between the two ends, but on the exterior of the solenoid. And then you apply an alternating current to the solenoid. You will produce an EMF in that exterior hoop that you put around it. However, according to mainstream science, that should be completely and totally impossible because there's no mag magnetic field present. And if there's no magnetic field, there shouldn't be any EMF produced. But it is being produced. Why? Because the vector potential is real. You're inducing the EMF with a flow of ether, a flow of vector potential. And there are scientists who try to make up phony, false, fake arguments against this effect. But every 
argument they make falls on its face. They try to say there's leakage magnetic fields coming from the solenoid, but that is false because in many experiments where this has been reproduced, even by mainstream scientists, any leakage magnetic field would be working in the opposite direction to inhibit any EMF coming, um, going through the hoop. So this is proof there is an ether, and it is proof that it is the ether which basically drags electrons and moves charged particles through a conductor. So that's basically the fundamental of electricity, is a flow of ether. Um, but it has to be a changing flow. It cannot be a constant flow. That's why you need the magnet in motion. Um, you have to have a gradient of ether. So you have a higher density region and a lower density region. And when you have a higher density region of ether, um, it will move a charged particle towards a region of lower density. It's almost like you can compare electrodynamics directly to hydrodynamics. There's actually some brilliant papers I urge your listeners to check out online. Um, and I'm not saying like any of their theories right now is 100% correct, but I believe these papers deserve serious consideration. It's papers about fluidic electrodynamics. If you Google the term fluidic electrodynamics, I'll repeat that, fluidic electrodynamics, you will find some papers that compare in easily understandable terms, but also mathematical terms, how you can compare um, electrodynamics to fluid dynamics because the ether exists and the vector potential and scalar potentials are not mathematical abstractions, but are actually physically real and observable. So what was the second question? <laughs> well, that's a great breakdown of the connection between ether and electricity. I like the hydrodynamics relationship to electrodynamics because that makes sense. If we think about the ether as an unseen medium that's just there, but Let's fold in consciousness and EVOs potentially. How are those things connected to the ether? How are, how are they related? Well, um, the ether permeates everything. It permeates the entire universe, even the empty space between um, the particles and atoms. Um, so um, EVOs are a way to gain traction, I would say, with the um, the vacuum and it gets really complicated and I am not a trained physicist. And so I basically read continuously. I've been doing this for many years, reading as many papers as I can grab a hold of. Um, I cannot follow the advanced, you know, calculus and extremely advanced maths, but I can understand the concepts. And basically what I have been able to gather is that EVOs can allow you to adhere or gain traction with um, the vacuum. And I believe this is because this is just what I believe. I'm not saying this is absolutely 100% correct, but I believe the reason EVOs can gain traction with the vacuum is because on their surface, they have um, electrons. And those electrons are in a special state. They are in the form of a Bose-Einstein condensate where they have lost some of their individuality and their waveforms are overlapping. And it's this condition 
of a Bose-Einstein condensate, which is way sim much more similar to the condition of the background ether that permeates the universe, that many people speculate in and of itself is a Bose-Einstein condensate. So I imagine it this way. Um, if you want to interact with the ether, um, normal electrons, for example, um, in a material would only interact with the ether. Like imagine, for example, um, you had a fan and you're trying to move air with a fan. And let's say the fan was a tennis racket, but with huge gaps, huge, huge openings with little tiny thin wire. Um, you couldn't blow much air. You couldn't gain much traction because you're using ordinary electrons, which is a different form of substance than the ether. But if you have a Bose-Einstein condensate, um, which takes the same, a similar form to the background ether, it's almost like having, um, you put, you taped a piece of paper over that racket. So when you swing it up and down, you're moving a lot more atmosphere. You can actually feel the air if you're trying to fan yourself with it. So that is um, my understanding of how EVOs can interact with the ether. Now, since EVOs or at least, um, you see, EVOs have what's called a double layer. It's that unique feature where there's one layer of positive ions just below the surface and then electrons <clears throat> in this condensate form on the surface. And um, throughout our bodies, for example, in our nerve cells, there are electrical double layers where you have positive ions on one side and um, um, negatives in another. And throughout our body, in our cells, I think maybe even in our mitochondria, I would have to check that, even in our mitochondria, there's double layers. Well, throughout our, our body, but let's say, look at nerve tissue. So if we have double layers in our bodies and EVOs are sending out signals, it's possible that we could intercept signals of EVOs and perhaps even transmit information to EVOs. And I mean, you can, this is a lot of speculation here. I admit that completely, but I kind of consider that, um, a lot of stuff in reality is connected to each other. And EVOs are a way to basically access the network. It's mm -hmm. basically your cable modem to jack in is the way I would describe it. I hope that answers your question. Yes, it does. And there's definitely a lot of things we wanted to get to. But I guess just to close the door on this little section, what do you consider consciousness to be? Is that a separate fabric from the ether? Is it something that emerges from the ether? Do you have any thoughts on what that is? Well, I'm a Christian. I'm not a perfect person. Um, I have to ask forgiveness for things I do all the time because none of us are perfect. We all sin. We do bad things. So, um, you know, I do not want to say I'm some perfect person when I say I'm a Christian. I, I definitely want to put that out there. However, I am a Christian. And I do believe that God um, made humanity, and I believe he gave us an immortal soul. And I believe we have a soul inside of us. We are not meat computers. We are not just balls of organic flesh in our heads. You know, we're not robots. We have an eternal aspect to us. And if we have a relationship with God, then we have a communication route between our soul and the creator. 
So I believe our consciousness is based far, far more on our spirit and our soul um, than anything else. Now we interface through our organic brain, but who we really are is stored in our soul and it can never be destroyed and we can never truly die. We will just, um, in my opinion, as a Christian, when you die, you'll go to heaven or hell, one or the other. And um, I think that consciousness is eternal and it is stored in the ether, the pattern that makes you, you and me, me, that stores all our memories, our personalities, our feelings, everything, all of our experiences in our life is stored in the ether in a pattern. And that pattern is our soul. And that soul may potentially, I mean, this is another big stretch, could be in the form of a self-organizing structure in the ether. Mm. Right on, right on. I like it. (laughs) I feel like you've developed a a way to blend this really exotic science and your Christian background, and I salute you for it. I think that's pretty interesting. And you mentioned the scaling up of these EVOs a little while back, and you had said to me that the key to scaling up the effect was to produce large-scale EVOs that would exist in a steady-state mode instead of simply being smacked against a target plate like Ken Shoulders was doing. And then you said, this is what the Sapphire Project is doing. And that is something we have had mentioned before, but it hasn't really been fully explained or detailed. You say it is one of the three major public groups that is utilizing EVOs in their technology, probably the one that's most important or most further along. Talk to us about the Sapphire Project and how they're taking this idea forward. Well, the Sapphire Project um, was commissioned by, um, I believe, the Thunderbolts Project or the Electric Universe Group. Right. Um, that believe the universe is electrical in nature. And the team ran by Monty Childs, um, who's the director of the Sapphire Project. It's independent from the um, Thunderbolts Project or the Electric Universe. That's important. Monty Childs had his own company before this. So it's independent. That needs to be stressed. They were basically trying to audit the um, theories of the um, electric universe and find out whether they were true or whether they were not. Um, So they were impartial. So they decided to build, um, first they started with a system in a bell jar, but then they scaled it up. And I'm going to talk mostly about the larger version of it. They decided to build a system to mimic um, what the electric universe theory um, proposed powers the sun. So basically, the electric universe theory claims that the sun is a positively charged object in a predominantly negatively charged environment. So they built a large reactor. Basically, you have um, DC input, fairly high voltage, and the voltage and current can be precisely controlled, and it goes to this large reactor um, which is very sophisticated with all types of measurement equipment all around it, spectrometers, um, bolometers, um, all kinds of digital cameras, infrared cameras, oscilloscopes, every kind of sensor you could imagine through the roof. 
Um, and but it's composed mainly of the you have two large copper cathodes of a large surface area. And then they're adjustable, so they can control the distance between the two. And then you have in between them, and these are interchangeable, and also um, they've tested both hollow ones and solid ones, spherical anodes. And these spherical anodes are made of a variety of different materials, um, which we'll get into later on, perhaps in the second hour. And basically, they put first to vacuum the gas out to degas it. They put in gases such as hydrogen, such as nitrogen, which seems to be a catalytic gas in their experiments. Um, apparently, nitrogen increases the energy output. Um, and they use, you know, they have a whole control panel full of ga gases. And you can see this in their videos. They have tested hydrogen, deuterium, um, argon, nitrogen, ordinary atmosphere, oxygen. Um, and they, once they have the gaseous mixture that they want in the reactor and they have the anode there, they turn it on and they will reach a certain voltage that um, will trigger a plasma discharge. And when that happens, a plasma will start to form around the anode. It starts off as like a thin layer with little beads on the anode, like little plasma beads, little dots on it. And as they turn up the current, and it's the current that mostly controls the reaction once you have a sufficient voltage. And as they adjust the current, which gives the plasma that self-organizing plasma around the anode, which is basically an EVO that's wrapping itself around the anode and developing. As they adjust the current and give it more food, um, more electrons, um, the plasma starts to grow and further self-organize. And eventually it will start to, um, those tufts, plasma tufts will start to spin and they will grow. And then all of a sudden you'll get these double layers where you will, what a double layer is, is you have one side of the plasma that ha is positively charged in another area that's natively charged, and they can stack on top of each other. And so they get several brilliant, beautiful double layers around the anode. And um, at some point, they start to get um, both transmutations in the atmosphere and also transmutations on the anode, but also they can generate a huge amount of excess heat. But the excess heat and transmutations really start not when you have these huge, gigantic double layers, but my understanding from what I have read and I have studied as much material that's out there as possible is that the excess heat begins when the double layers coalesce and drop down and condense to one thin, powerful double layer with an intense voltage drop right immediately off the surface of the anode. And it's brilliantly glowing. I mean, I mean, brilliant yellow or maybe light orange, but brilliant. And that's when um, they're producing massive amounts of excess heat. In one experiment that's in one of their videos, they actually melted the anode. And you can see it just falling down and falling over. Um, also, Monty Childs has stated that in one experiment, and I should mention he has stated um, in interviews that they can reproduce these experiments at will. They use a data acquisition 
system and to accord their data. It's called design of experiments. And it allows them to accord everything, every parameter, every data point. And it will give them um, and it analyzes this data and it gives them critical information to understand which parameters are the most important, for example. And um, but in this experiment, they put in 1800 watts of electrical power. And according to Montgomery Childs, they produced over 10 million watts of output. And if I understand his explanation correctly, the way they're able to measure that was the rate or the curve of the temperature increase in the reactor. And from that, they could calculate um, the power output. And so um, if you divide 10 million, which was conservative because it was most likely more than that, 10 million watts of output, if you divide that by 1800 watts, that's a COP um, I believe of 5,666. So it's a huge amount of energy they are able to produce. But importantly, um, it produces no radioactive byproducts. It does not emit gamma rays. It does not emit deadly emissions. It is perfectly safe. Um, and they are moving forward now with their plans to commercialize this technology. They are trying to raise funds, um, I believe, um, several million dollars, I'm not sure of the exact figure, um, to raise money. Um, there's different segments of their plans to build first, um, basically to build a commercial unit that they can put in the market that would be used to produce heat, that would generate steam, that would turn a turbine, which would turn a generator and produce electrical output. It would be um, a clean form of energy production. What's also fascinating is this technology can be used to remediate nuclear waste. Because if you look on the anode, when after one of their high-powered runs, when the current is high and the um, double layers condense down, so they're in this zone where they're producing excess heat, they're also producing transmutations. And the transmutation products are all um, stable products. There's nothing radioactive. No uranium is produced. You know, no plutonium is produced. It's all safe, natural elements that are produced. So let's say, you know, some common elements that um, are used um, in their anode material, you know, tungsten, nickel, and iron. And there's maybe a couple others, too, that they typically use. Um, but a, but he has Montgomery Childs has actually stated in an interview that basically a wide range of materials in their anode will produce these transmutations. Uh, you know, many gas combinations will work. Of course, you need hydrogen or deuterium, one form of that. You need hydrogen. That's important. But many gas combinations work. And but it, let's say um, for nuclear waste remediation, what they would do is they would expose radioactive material, waste material, and of course they have to make deals with the Department of Energy and the Canadian Department of Energy, um, you know, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission and all that to do such experiments. And they're um, right now, I believe, working to form such relationships um, so they can get permission to do this because, you know, when you're dealing with radioactive materials, you have to use um, an extreme amount of caution, and you have to get licenses and permissions and permits and all that. But what you would do is expose the radioactive material to these plasma double layers, 
and especially when it's at high power. And it would transform the radioactive elements into stable, safe elements. And so one idea they had would, and he has mentioned this in videos, is having these reactors next to conventional fission-based power plants. So as the fission-based power plant, I mean, not forever, just during the transition phase while this technology is rolling out. So as the fission-based power plant is producing nuclear waste, it gets used to produce even more energy by a sapphire reactor. And that sapphire reactor, in the process of remediating the nuclear waste, would be producing energy in the process. And so that's another application for it. Um, so the Sapphire Project is really, really amazing. And I believe there's um, actually implications for gravity control, um, very strong implications. They've only hinted at this, that they have observed um, shielding of you know, gravitational influences on matter within these double layers. They've only hinted at that, that somehow there's some kind of gravitational shielding effect. Um, but they really haven't said a whole lot about that. So the Sapphire Project is a professional outfit. They're extremely credible. They're doing fantastic work. They're consulting with experts around the country from um, major companies, Lockheed and the Department of Energy and probably many others as well. Um, and I think it's a company that deserves their attention. And I think everybody should go on YouTube and Google the Sapphire Project, watch their videos, um, go to their websites. I believe one of the websites is sapphireproject.com. They just, they just recently launched another website called Orion Energy. And let me see if I can find that site so I can spell it for you. So um, it's Orion Energy. That's A-U-R-E-O-N dot C-A. So A-U-R-E-O-N dot C-A, Orion Energy. And so they just launched this website and they have a new introductory video about their technology discussing their plans and ambitions. Um, so I highly urge all your listeners to check that out. Right on. Very cool. And you gave us a great technical explanation of what's actually happening in these Sapphire Project experiments. And of course, the application would be a device that puts out more energy than it takes to run. And when you get a sense of this device, would it be something that would power a home? Would it be more applicable to a neighborhood or even a whole town? I mean, how much power can one device put off? Or is there really a limit if it scales? Well, all plasma phenomena is scalable. And I believe in the future, this technology will power everything from individual appliances to individual houses to entire cities. Um, however, to begin with, my guess is they will not be looking to make individual home units to begin with. Uh, I'm just guessing. I don't know. I do not know their business plan. I don't know all of their plans. But um, there's like a little illustration, a very well-made illustration of a potential generator, you know, a commercial generator on their website. I'm not sure how large it is, 
my guess is that it would produce more electrical power than one home would need. So I'm guessing neighborhood size, maybe. Wow. But um, that would just be the beginning. That would be the beginning. And it's not just producing more energy out than in. It's producing huge coefficient of performance ratings, um, you know, potentially thousands of times more energy out than in. And what's also important to note about this, um, this technology, the EVO phenomena has been involved in coal fusion. And most people um, in the coal fusion fusion community did not make that connection until perhaps only a couple years ago. Because, you know, coal fusion and LENR, which stands for low energy nuclear reactions, the whole concept, whether you use an electrolytic system or if you use a gas loading system, the whole idea is to get hydrogen or deuterium to go through all the different processes to get into the metal. There's that adsorption process um, where, let's say, hydrogen, molecular hydrogen, H2, touches the surface of the, let's say, using nickel powder, touches the surface of the nickel powder. Then it has to disassociate into atomic hydrogen, individual hydrogen atoms. Then it has to go through absorption to penetrate the surface, to be absorbed into the lattice, and then it has to migrate further in to the surface. Um, and so that's the whole, that's the main concept of co-fusion, getting hydrogen into the metal. And if you can do that, then, um, and you can do different things to accelerate the process. You can create atomic hydrogen in the atmosphere. You can use what's called reverse spillover catalyst. You know, for example, covering the nickel particles or other metals um, with um, nanoparticles of another metal, um, even smaller particles of, let's say, palladium or platinum that would dissociate the um, hydrogen or deuterium. So it's in the atomic form. So it can just immediately penetrate into the metal. But once you get enough hydrogen loaded into the metal, it becomes embrittled and the and as the hydrogen or deuterium travels through the material it causes damage it will actually cause microfractures fractures and voids and cavities to form within the metal crystalline lattice and this will cause charge separation well you'll have one side of one of these cavities or cracks be more positively charged and the other side more negatively charged. And this creates an EVO because there's a little tiny, tiny nanoscale electrical spark that creates a little EVO. And that is one of the drivers of coal fusion. Um, perhaps, I believe, one of the primary drivers of coal fusion. And what's so important with what the Sapphire Project is doing, it's taking this primary mechanism of coal fusion or LENR. And they don't call what they're doing LENR, a coal fusion. They have their own name, a more general term for what they're doing. I do not remember it at the at the moment. I think they call it electronuclear resonance or something like that. They just created a name, a generic name, because they don't want to be tightly bound to any one theory at this point, because they're more focused on getting a practical product out rather than getting caught up into one specific theory. So um, what they have done, though, in my opinion, this is not what they say. 
this is just me. Um, they don't publicly talk about EVOs. So this is just me. Um, what they have done is isolate the prime driver of cold fusion or LENR, which is the EVO. And if conventional cold fusion um, and LNR systems, which are powder-based, can be really tricky to get to work repeatedly because the whole hydrogen absorption process is so tricky. You have to process the fuel just right with vacuum degassing and with adding reverse spillover catalyst or with repeated um, pressurizations and vacuuming cycles and then flooding it with hydrogen again. It takes a lot of work. But what they are able to do is isolate the EVO phenomenon. And instead of having perhaps millions of little itty bitty tiny nanoscale EVOs in a grain of nickel powder, they are able to produce in their device a macro scale EVO that wraps around their anode, which is a few inches in diameter. So you have a macro scale EVO and um, they're able to adjust it to create the maximum level of self-organization and they are able to create these double layers and then turn up the current, condense the double layers and start generating um, excess energy. They've basically isolated the most important prime mover of LNR. This is really, in my opinion, there may be other processes that work in addition to LNR. I believe this um, technology could also be tapping energy from the vacuum. I believe that EVOs do both. They can induce safe nuclear reactions, but they can also tap energy from the vacuum. That's just my opinion. Um, and they have figured out how to do that without having to worry about all the gunk and old-fashioned cold fusion and LNR. This is really the future. This is really what Pons and Fleischmann um, would have dreamed of, is what the Sapphire Project is doing. Um, and that's why it's so exciting to me. Yeah, this is really impressive. The amount of knowledge you have is just uh, pretty staggering. And a little bit earlier, you mentioned the term transmutation, and that is a very provocative term, of course. And I am curious if EVOs could relate to mineral alchemy or substances like monoatomic gold and the stories that we've heard about that, because people tend to speculate that ether is involved or some perfect form of certain minerals is related. Any thoughts? I'm not as familiar with some of those concepts as I am with others, but I will say that EVOs do occur in nature. Um, they could occur in the earth because the earth has minerals. It has rock formations. It has geology and there are layers in the earth. And it's very possible that um, there are electrical disturbances in the earth, perhaps by fracto emission, perhaps by other mechanisms. And these electrical currents could produce EVOs and self-organizing plasmas that could produce exotic minerals and exotic substances. I mean, just as an example here. And I have seen videos online um, where um, researchers have discovered like spherical shaped rocks. And if you crack them open, there's like the fossilized remains of like an animal or fish or a crab or something, an organism that was in the middle of eating another organism. And it was, and it looked, and it appears that the, the, the animal 
and the spherical ball was transmuted instantly. It all happened instantly, not over millions of years or a slow, gradual process, but um, the life form and the material around it was just instantly transformed. And so there's a possibility that there are large-scale electrical phenomena that can produce this. Also, there's a story I've heard about where there were some high-voltage power lines that came down in this area. And it was a wet, soggy area, and there was all these tree stumps. And apparently, these tree stumps got completely 100% fossilized from these electrical discharges, from these high-voltage lines. That might have something to do with the EBO phenomena. Um, also, this is something else you may want to think about. On the Sapphire Project anode, when they examine it after one of these high-energy runs, when they are producing excess heat at higher current levels, there are little tiny perfect spheres on the surface of the anode. And they don't know how they form. And um, they have shown pictures from a, with a scanning electron microscope of these little tiny nanospheres. And so there's all kinds of ways that EVOs could be involved in the phenomena that you described. Wow, man, that's provocative. This is not really on the docket, but I do hear people discussing these kind of concepts when they talk about lost ancient civilizations or speculation that some natural frequency-based phenomena could ripple through and unravel matter or transmute it to a fossil-like form or create like a, a modification of everything. There are some weird ideas out there and they don't really ring true to me unless I really get deep into thinking about these concepts as if like something really could just affect all matter. Some change would just be planet-wide or instantaneous based on some phenomena, maybe a discharge from the sun or something that happens once every five million years or something like that. I'm not sure, but do you have any thoughts about that prospect? Well, I'll just say that anyone who is interested in that should check out the electric universe theory. And the best way to get information about that would be to go to the Thunderbolts Project webpage and especially their YouTube channel. They have some great videos that describe their ideas about the Electric Universe. And I have reviewed several of the videos over the years and in recent times. And I will just say they're fascinating. I'm not going to say they're 100% correct because who knows if any of us are 100% correct in their theories and ideas. But I think they deserve serious attention. I think they make very valid points, and they discuss some of this about how ancient civilizations could have witnessed, you know, solar system-wide cataclysms that could have involved powerful electrical discharges that could have left lingering marks and lingering traces um, on planets right now today in our solar system, maybe even our own Earth. Maybe some of the geological features here on Earth today are from um, electrical phenomena, we, you know, but especially on planets like Mars, where um, there's not as much erosion and the surface doesn't change as rapidly as on Earth. Um, so that's where I would direct people to to get information about the topics you just mentioned. Um, would be the Thunderbolts project. There's some very bright people doing research for them, 
So I would urge people to check them out. Sure, sure. Yes, we've been lucky enough to spend some time with a couple of them, but there's definitely more to unpack there for sure. And you mentioned that the Sapphire Project maybe isn't focusing on propulsion, but you think that the Evo phenomenon is at the heart of UFO technology. You said that you see them using it for power, propulsion, gravity control, and inertial dampening all rolled into one. Can you maybe elaborate on those mechanics? Okay. Well, um, it's this is going to get a little technical, <laughs> but I'll do my best to try to um, explain it in a way that your readers can understand, because even to get it all in my head, I had to read a ton of papers repeatedly to try to condense this in my mind. Sure. Basically, um, if you look at the work of Harold Puttoff, who did collaborate with Kenneth Radford Shoulders for a period of time, he has a theory, and many other, other people have very similar theories, that gravity is not a pull, that gravity is actually a push. And the basic theory goes as this, that throughout the universe, there's a zero point energy field, or you could call it the ether. You could call it the electron positron C. If you ever want to check out the articles of Don Hodson, which was a gentleman that writ, writ, excuse me, that composed several articles for Infinite Energy magazine. Um, Don Hodson talks about the electron positron C in many of his papers. But there's this universal medium. And let's say you have a large body, such as air planet Earth, in this medium. There are um, waves in the ether. You could call them vector potential waves. You could call them longitudinal waves. Um, but just, let's just say there's waves or flows of the ether. And they're going in all directions at all time, at all times throughout the universe. And so a planet, um, when it's sitting in space, there's... Um, the flow is going through the surface of the planet, through the core and out the other side, but in all directions equally. Now, the problem is that the Earth, it's not really a problem, it's just how this theory goes, the Earth absorbs a very small fraction of these waves or this flow of ether, um, a minuscule fraction. However, um, it's enough so that an object sitting on the surface, like you in your chair right now, there would be less ether coming upwards from underneath you than down from above. So literally, the ether flow is pushing you downwards towards the planet. Now, that's an important concept because without going into all the technical details, you can utilize this concept. Um, and especially if you want to understand this, like I said, check out some of the great papers out there about fluid, fluidic electrodynamics. And you can also check out other papers, too. There's a great document online called, I believe, A Brief Introduction to um, Scalar Electrodynamics. It can be found on the montalk.net website. Um, uh, I think there's a link to it there. Um, I th actually think it's hosted on another website, but you can find a link to it there. So it's M-O-N-T-A-L-K.net, which is a website all about um, etheric physics. And basically, gravity, inertia, and mass are all phenomenon based uh, on the interaction of matter with the ether on these flows. So what I'm saying about how EVOs can manipulate these forces 
is because, like I said before, the EVO has a surface composed of electrons. And these electrons are in a unique state of Bose-Einstein condensate. And when they're in motion, they can create their own flows of ether. And these flows of ether can counteract other flows of ether. And so if you create a bubble of vector potential, and vector potential is symbolized with the A symbol rather than the B symbol for magnetic fields. So if you generate a bubble of vector potential around a craft, like, for example, consider the flux liner alien reproduction vehicle that um, likely was built by Lockheed in the 60s and was witnessed in 1988 by um, a visitor to Lockheed Palmdale. You can watch all of this in a documentary on YouTube. It's an excellent documentary made by James Higgins um, on YouTube. Um, James Higgins has passed away. It seems like he died of heavy metal poisoning, although that's not conclusive. Um, he died of cancer, and it could have been from him being poisoned. We don't know. That's speculation. But there's rumors of that. But he made this documentary about the Fluxliner ARV, and the Fluxliner um, utilized a central column. Um, this is only one component of it. I'm not going to get into all the others. But it had a central column, and it had a self-organizing plasma in the center. And the self-organizing plasma, um, which was most likely a very specific mercury isotope, um, I believe mercury-199, um, which would have some specific properties such as having a um, one-half integer spin, which would prevent it from having a quadrupolar moment, which would basically what all that means is that the spin of all the mercury ions would be aligned. And so basically you'd create this self-organizing plasma and it would create a bubble of vector potential around the craft. And because that self-organizing plasma would have that superconducting layer, it would be able to make the gradient of this bubble of vector potential very, very strong. And this gradient could be a factor of both geometry of the bubble and it could also be a factor um, of the change in intensity because remember um, the importance of a high rate of change. Even in Nikola Tesla's system of his spark gaps, he used a high rate of change, um, and that's critical to manipulating the ether. And so if you pulsed it really, really fast, we're talking about millions of voltages with the Fluxliner ARV, millions of volts, um, you'd create this bubble. And if you were inside the craft, you could basically um, direct the craft to move in a certain direction because it's creating its own gravitational field um, with this bubble of vector potential. Also, you would not feel any inertial forces inside the craft. You would not feel um, any acceleration because the whole craft would be moving in its own little bubble of space-time. Also, the craft um, could potentially bypass the speed of light limitation because you would be like a cavitating torpedo because the speed of light is basically due to the fact that mass has a certain friction with the ether. It's kind of like a force working against you, kind of like the sound barrier. That's a very loose comparison 
but sort of like the sound barrier. Um, but if you can create this bubble of vector potential, it's almost like having a cavitating torpedo that allows a torpedo to travel much, much faster underwater. So it can actually wrap the oncoming ether around you rather than it having it pass through you and slow you down. And what's also interesting in these UFOs like Fluxliner ARV, time is actually just a function of the scalar potential that I mentioned earlier. Like if you're under a river and there's water all around you, the static pressure against you, that controls the rate of time. So aliens, or perhaps even in human belt craft, if they can change the pressure inside of the craft, they could control the rate of time as it is experienced by the occupants. Wow. In just one direction or both? Well, they I don't believe in time travel. That's just me. I don't believe in, for example, going back in time and changing your past and creating all kinds of paradoxes. I don't believe that is possible. It could be. I could be wrong. Um, I tend not to think that's likely just due to all the paradoxes it could create. However, I do think it's very likely the rate of time could be changed the, um, so that in one area it's much slower than another. So um, think about alien abduction experiences, which I believe some are indeed real. UFOs could, for example, abduct somebody um, and the aliens could be performing procedures in a zone where time is slowed down compared to the outside world. So basically what I'm trying to get at is they could do hours worth of procedures on someone, but set them back in their house and to the rest of the world only minutes passed. Yeah, that's exactly what the stories tell us. Yes. And it's and all of this is explainable if we accept the physical reality of the vector and scalar potentials, which means the ether has to exist. Um, and the EVO phenomenon, in my opinion, is the key link. Kenneth Shoulders, in many of his papers, he can he described this as the universe. He described EVOs as a universal clutch that gives traction between air level of reality and the ether, or this zero point energy field, whatever you want to call it. He called it a universal clutch. And that's why I believe this EVO phenomenon is so important. People need to study it and people need to look at the different groups that are utilizing it. And now these groups right now, um, I'll mention this because you touched on it earlier. There's three main groups that are utilizing the EVO phenomenon. Um, now, I want to be very careful here because most of these groups are not using the language I'm using. And a lot of these groups believe differently than what I'm about to say. This is my opinion not specifically theirs. I want to give that disclaimer out. This is my opinion, not specifically theirs. Um, we have the Sapphire Project. They are aware of EVOs. I will tell you why they are aware of EVOs. The Sapphire Project is aware of EVOs because Harold Putoff is one of their scientific advisors. If you go to the Orion Energy website and look at their um, a photograph on their website of all their science advisors, you will see Dr. Harold E. Putoff in the front and center. And he and he worked with um, Kenneth Shoulders on the EVO phenomenon. Also, another advisor, now this is where it gets very interesting, another advisor to the Sapphire Project is Dr. Eric W. Davis. 
and Dr. Eric W. Davis was just recently, he previously has moved on to work for Aerospace Corporation, I believe. I'm not sure. I think they have multiple facilities around the country. He might be in Los Angeles. Um, I'm not sure, but he's working for Aerospace Corporation. But Eric Davis used to be the chief scientist for Dr. Harold Puttoff's um, Austin Institute for Advanced Study, also known as Earth Tech. And uh, m- many years ago, Eric Davis, um, when he was doing um, papers, writing reports for um, the Air Force, and specifically, I think, Edwards Air Force Base, he was written, writing different scientific papers. There was one called the Ball Lightning Study. And the Ball Lightning Study was acquired via Freedom of Information Act request, and it's available online. And he reviews a lot of this self-organizing plasma phenomena, not just EVOs, but a broad variety of different technological devices, different theories, um, a lot of different stuff. However, he also discusses EVOs and Ken the Shoulders work, and he specifically proposes a replication project to reproduce a classic Kenneth shoulders evo generator which would consist of like a discharge tube um, with low pressure argon and a sharpened cathode wetted with mercury um, that protects the tip from being destroyed the mercury acts as a sacrificial wetting agent and you you would have an anode and you would pulse it and you would measure the electrical output out and he proposed a project he even had a bill of materials um Um, a proposed budget, um, everything in there. And what's so interesting is that officially we don't know what happened, if that ever went through, if he got approval to do that project or not. However, Dr. Stephen Greer of the Disclosure Project, he was also, you know, um, director of CSETI and these other UFO disclosure programs over the years. There's a video on YouTube I cannot find anymore, but I watched it multiple times, so I'm absolutely 100% sure it existed. He described how a visiting scientist, this was one of his disclosure project witnesses, um, how a visiting scientist went to um, Edwards Air Force Base, to their research laboratory there, at the Air Force Research Laboratory, and he was visiting, and he was shown a device that he was told produced um, or extracted energy from the vacuum, but it only extracted a small amount of energy from the vacuum, and they didn't know how to scale it up. And he drew an, um, a diagram of the device, and that diagram turns out to be a dead ringer for a Kenneth Shoulders EVO generator. <laughs> wow, wow. But the scuttle, the further scuttlebutt on the internet is that, and I trust this, um, I believe this to be true. We can't know for sure it's true. This is not firsthand information, okay? So I'm not 100% saying this is accurate, but I'm very confident it is. Even though I'm not 100%, I'm very confident that before he could publish a paper on his results, the whole project was classified. And so you asked earlier about scaling up this phenomenon and how to scale it up. Well, for example, the Sapphire Project has scaled it up because instead of producing a transient EVO that is shot off a cathode, 
travels across the gap and hits an anode and produces both a electrical current that you know goes down the anode wire that can be measured and creates a radiant blast of energy, um, kind of like Ed, Edwin V. Gray's system and others that produced radiant energy. You could capture that. Um, but the Sapphire Project is creating one large steady state plasma ball or EVO. And that is really the way to go instead of these transient, very short-lived micron-sized EVOs. Um, and so that's how you basically scale it up. So in addition to the Sapphire Project, there's also Andrea Rossi. Let me take a sip of water, please. <laughs> sure, sure. Yes, you've earned it, man. You know a lot about this stuff. And uh, this is just so interesting to hear you talk about it. Okay. With Dr. Andrea Rossi, um, I think I'm not sure if he has a literal PhD or just an honorary PhD. I believe sometimes he calls himself doctor, but he is a very smart engineer. Um, and he has been working on cold fusion and LANR devices for probably about 15 years, um, first several years behind the scenes. And I would say around the year 2000, he first came forward with his ECAT technology, which stands for energy catalyzer. And he was first utilizing gas loading systems where he would have nickel powder with various catalytic powders mixed in and various methods for generating um, atomic hydrogen. And, and it's a long story I won't go into because I know we don't have all night. <laughs> but basically, he built several different variations of this reactor. Um, and he went through many different models. And yes, um, there's a lot of controversy about him on the Internet. Um, and despite anything else, despite any of the controversy, despite any of the accusations, which I'm not going to say none of them are true, I do believe that at the core, his technology did indeed work. Um, even if there were situations where he may not have always been 100% honest, um, or if there were certain times he had failures. Um, of certain devices because devices can fail for because of leaks, because of technical issues, because of electronics issues. There's lots of reasons, you know, individual devices can fail and not work. Um, but I believe overall his technology is real and did work. And so he built many of these powder based systems. But in recent years, he has went and focused on purely plasma based systems. And um, his plasma-based systems utilize the same basic concept as Kenneth Shoulders, except that instead of just creating a transitory plasma ball or EVO, he is producing a steady-state EVO. And he's had three different versions of this plasma-based technology. Um, the first of the plasma-based was called the ECAT QX. Then the next one was the ECAT SK for, um, I think, Steve Colander, which was a Swedish physicist that worked with him or advised him for a while, um, or at least was um, someone who he had discussions with. And then the last version was the ECAT SKL, and that's the version he's working on right now. And these devices produce a steady state plasma ball. 
um, or EVO in them. Um, Andrea Rossi has published a paper that's available online where he does mention Kenneth's shoulders. Um, the paper doesn't use the exact same language I'm using. It does not. But I believe um, his paper is roughly analogous to what I'm saying. But it's obvious that he's using the EVO phenomenon. And his systems can produce massive excess heat. But what's so important with his latest version of it, um, they can produce direct electrical output, bypassing the need to turn water in the steam and turn a turbine and then turn a generator to produce electricity. He can extract electricity directly. And yet now this device has not been tested. We don't have a third party report. So before we believe it 100 percent and completely, then we, we need a third party report. And so that's supposed to be coming. The coronavirus scare has kind of put a little bit of the brakes on that. It has put things on hold, but he is still working, according to him, um, towards having such a um, test done of this system. So hopefully in the coming months, once the travel restrictions are lifted, um, he can continue to work on that and bring in a third party team that he's already in communication with and have them run some validation tests on it. Hmm. And I believe that it will work because of the simple fact there are many devices, both the ones I'm talking about right now that are in the current day and in the past that utilize this phenomenon. Um, and in addition to Andrea Rossi, there's brilliant light power. I want to be very careful about what I say about brilliant light power because brilliant light power, number one, they do not talk about EVOs, period. Number two, they do not proclaim that they are inducing any type of nuclear reactions, LENR, cold fusion, or any other kind. They have their own theory that, or Randall Mills, their CEO, has his own theory that they are producing a different form of hydrogen in which the electron orbiting the hydrogen atom drops down to below what's called the ground state, which is the level that, the lowest level that a hot electron can orbit around um, a proton, but they believe they can go below that. And when they go below that, Randall Mills claims, and they have some data for this, they have evidence, there's been a bunch of testing done by third parties that seem to show evidence that they have produced this altered form of hydrogen, um, that there's an energy released between that of chemical and nuclear, uh, where a chemical reaction may release only, you know, three, four, five electron volts per reaction, um, a nuclear reaction can produce millions of EVOs per reaction. But this hydrino reaction that brilliant light power um, proposes produces a few hundred. So it's on the low side of being in between both. Um, but what's so interesting is right now they have a new version of, the te of their technology because they've been working on variants of it for 20 years. But their latest version is called the sun cell. And the sun cell utilizes the negative resistance regime of a plasma discharge. And that's another topic I really want to discuss with you tonight to help people understand how you can produce EVOs. One way to do it is to take a negative, is to have electrical discharge. And you've seen a plasma tube, haven't you? Like yes. a glow discharge tube? Mm -hmm. Well, there's stages of an electrical discharge. There's the and there's many other stages. I'm just reducing it down to three for simplicity. You have the typical glow discharge stage. 
which has ordinary or positive resistance. Okay, that means when the voltage goes up, the current goes up. Ordinary electronics, ordinary resistance. Then you have what's called the negative resistance regime. In the negative resistance regime, the opposite is true. Um, when your um, voltage goes up, your current goes down or vice versa. The relationship between current and voltage is flipped. What's also very important, it's during this regime that by definition, even in mainstream papers, this is fact. This is not just conjecture. This is not just you know, theory by LNR researchers. This is fact that in the negative resistance regime, by definition, um, a what's called, this is another name for EVO, complex space charge configuration. I will repeat it. Complex space charge configuration is formed. And this complex space charge configuration is an EVO. It has an interior of positive ions and an exterior of electrons and it self-organizes and what it does is to power the circuit during the negative resistance regime it absorbs thermal energy from the electrons in the plasma environment and converts it into electrical current but the problem with the negative resistance regime is it's most of the time designed out of modern technology there's only a very few applications for it in modern technology because it can very rapidly slip into a true arc discharge regime. And in the true arc discharge regime, the, um, the resistance drops even lower and you get a huge current going through and it can burn out your power supply. This is why, for example, fluorescent bulbs have a ballast, a resistor, to um, keep the current um, at a level um, so that you don't go into the negative resistance regime, which would quickly take you into an arc discharge. And that's why if your ballast goes bad, your fluorescent lights will fail because they can burn out. So it's this negative resistance regime. If you can isolate it, if you can keep a discharge specifically in this regime, that you can, by definition, produce an EVO. They don't call it EVO in the mainstream papers. But they'll call it names like um, complex space charge configuration. In other papers, they will call it a fireball or a fire rod or a plasmoid. But it, it by definition, will be produced. And brilliant light power is pulsing their system um, and where they are entering this negative resistance regime. And they are producing huge amounts of anomalous heat huge amounts um and so they are utilizing this phenomenon as well so that's three companies in modern time in modern times that are utilizing this i believe sapphire um is probably um the most sophisticated and i believe they are probably the leader right now that's just my personal opinion um just from what i have seen um and i will say one reason for that is because they are not bound by any one particular theory. They are just observing it. They're going about this in a phenomenological way. They're making observations and then analyzing the data and moving on and advancing their technology from that data without being bound to any one theory. So um, they're making great progress um, and they have proven 
through third-party laboratories that they are producing transmutation products. Um, so it's really exciting. Then if you look at the past, I mean, I'm going, going to go through super quick, I promise. <laughs> but if you look in the past, um, you know, EVOs were involved in Nikola Tesla's spark gaps because he tried to pulse his spark gap very rapidly um, in a unidirectional manner without the current reversing. And he used like a flow of air to quench it. He used magnetic fields to quench his spark gaps. And basically it was an EVO generator. Um, and I believe that was what gave him the massive energy gain because it created this burst of radiant energy that was picked up by his primary and which was then amplified by his secondary coil. And then he had what was called extra coils that magnified it even further. So I believe that was the one of the mechanisms by which he produced the gain of energy. Also, we have Thomas Henry Moray and his vacuum tubes he produced. Um, and he used um, a concept where he was creating electrical glow discharges, but he was using small amounts of radioactive materials in his tubes to pre-ionize the environment. But if you would tune them into resonance, and that's another key concept here, tuning it into resonance, he would produce massive gains of energy. Um, then there's Edwin V. Gray of California in the late 70s and 80s. He produced a series of motors and different devices that operated on the same concept of a unidirectional um, spark gap that was very rapidly pulsed. Um, and he was able to pulse the system and capture with these external collection grids this radiant energy that blasted off. Um, and, and he was able to, from what I have been able to determine, he sent his motor to um, Caltech in California and they gave him a certificate that stated it produced more than 200 times more output than input. And that used EVOs, obviously. Then we have Joseph Papp's noble gas engine that um, some people may know about. It used a mixture of noble gases um, within a cylinder. And when he ignited um, a specially designed spark plug type device within the cylinder, um, it would ignite a plasma ball and it would push a piston and he was able to power his motor. It was a closed system um, and he was able to have third parties test his motor and it worked. Um, then we have Alexander Chernetsky's self-generating discharge tube. Hal Putoff again went to Russia to investigate his claims. Alexander Chinetsky had this discharge tomb that operated specifically in the negative resistance regime. And it produced way more electrical. I think it was three or four times, but I'm sure he could have optimized it much, much further. It produced three or four more times electrical output than input, according to him. Um, and mysteriously, Alexander Chinetsky was killed in a car accident. Um, a few weeks, I believe it was only a few weeks after um, that team went to investigate. And I'm not saying in any way that visit had anything to do with his demise at all. I'm not saying that. I am only saying that um, it's a shame that he did not live longer to further develop his technology and that he did not have the opportunity to build more devices and um, produce more experiments to show off to people like Dr. Hal Putoff 
that could have then presented the technology to other parties could, that could have helped them further develop it. You know, and then we have Paulo and Alexandra Correa's Pulsed Abnormal Glow Discharge Device. Um, their website, I think, was like aetherometry.com. Aetherometry.com. I guess you could pronounce it etherometry.com. And um, they had a device that specifically worked in the negative resistance regime. And they were, get, they were able to get um, excess electrical output out. I mean, the list goes on and on. Even um, all these HHO systems you hear about, Brown's gas systems, most of these Brown's gas systems, the anomalies that are produced by the Brown's gas is due to the fact that there are cavitation bubbles being created and there's EVOs being generated. These EVOs on the tiny scale get embedded into the water molecules. And the water molecules become a form of electrically expanded water. And if you're interested in this, you can go online and do some research into George Wiseman of Eagle Research. He's been working on Brown's gas generators for a very long time. And he has done all kinds of great work and determined that there's a form of electrically expanded water that's basically water that has turned to a gas, but via a non-thermal mechanism. And um, this water, when you ignite it, the EVOs are released. And again, he does not use the term EVOs. Um, he has his own ideas about what exactly is happening. But the EVOs are released and, um, the, and they interact with the material the flame is applied to. And that is what allows, for example, Brown's gas to transmute elements when it um, is applied to a material. Brown's gas generators um, produce a form of electrically expanded water, which is produced by the cavitation that takes place. For example, if you have pulsed DC going in, you will see hydrogen forming on the cathode, oxygen bubbles forming on the anode, and between the two, you will have a separate stream of bubbles forming. And that's from cavitation. And that's where the electrically expanded water is coming from. And basically, when um, you ignite the gas and you apply it to a substance, my this is me. I'm not saying this is 100% correct, but this is just my understanding of it now. Um, well, we know for a fact that it will produce transmutation. It will remediate nuclear waste. You can apply Brown's gas to radioactive material, and it will reduce the radioactivity. This is proven. But what I think is happening, why I can do things like, for example, vaporize tungsten um, and um, oxidize it in a very weird way and interact so strangely with different metals is because um, basically that flame acts as a cathode because it's spraying out electrons and EVOs. And so you have the cathode and then you have um the material which is acting as an anode a more positively charged structure and then you start creating a second larger macro scale evo or double layer right off the surface of the anode and this um will basically accelerate the processes that destroy or damage or vaporize or even oxidize the material so the EVO phenomenon connects all these different phenomena together. I, and there's many more I didn't mention. Um, 
But if you look at the EVO phenomenon, it is ubiquitous, not only in nature, not only in biology, it's not only involved in UFO propulsion, but all these different exotic technologies. I believe most of the exotic technologies that were not hoaxes and scams, because there have been many that were hoaxes and scams. There are con men that like to build bogus devices. And then there are other people that simply delude themselves because there is simple measurement errors they do not um, account for. And so there are many cases where cold fusion and different devices didn't work because they just were literally not working. But though of all the exotic energy technologies that really did work, I believe EVOs are the predominant prime mover of these systems. Mm. Wow. Wow. Well, I really appreciate that walk through history and all the different devices that you think were legitimate and just everything you shared with us today. It's really impressive. And I hope that it's been helpful for people trying to better understand the alternative energy and ether physics communities. It's just, it's nuts. And I can't believe you're actually going to retire this information from your brain space. I guess as we're wrapping this up, would you want to leave people with anything else, anything else they should follow up on? What would you like to see happen or what might you dedicate your time to? Well, um, I don't want to talk about me so much what I plan to do, but what I hope to see happen in the UFO community is I really hope to see people take the Admiral Thomas Wilson document more seriously. I want to see the UFO community refocus on it because it was a sudden spike in attention it received when it first leaked out. And now people are not talking about it as frequently. However, it provides us with some key insights about the interface between um, the DOD and the special access programs. And that interface is the senior review group of this um, special access program oversight committee. And especially um, the leadership team of the um, senior review group, such as the director of special programs. And the direct one example of someone who was director of special programs was General William McCaslin, Tom DeLong's original advisor. And so we can understand now why Tom DeLong said General William McCaslin was such an important man. He wasn't such an important man because he worked at Wright Patterson like TTSA has said repeatedly and everybody likes to repeat, no, he wasn't such an important man because his assignment immediately before going to Wright-Patterson was director of special projects um, for Alstad. So that's what puts him in the prime position to be at the nexus. He is the nexus, the key man that interfaces between the black world of these special access programs and the Pentagon. Everything goes through him. And so if the Congress, if the Senate wants to know how to get this information, um, they can either go directly to these aerospace corporations, which they should do. But number two, they, they can go directly to all these different individuals who have been on the leadership team of the senior review group and all the different individuals who are still alive that have been the director of special programs and they need to bring them into Congress and they need to swear them under oath and tell them they need to say everything they know about these UFO related special access programs. And it needs to be on the public record, not in secret. It doesn't need to be a um, classified hearing. It needs to be broadcast on C-SPAN for the world to see 
because the only way to end this cover-up is not with a slow disclosure, not with a drip feed. That's only going to cause more frustration. It's going to make people mad. It's going to slowly build up their rage over time. If the best way to disclose all this is immediately, quickly, all at once, because then the truth can get out there completely, but then we can focus on the positive side, which is using that information to build a better world, to reduce human suffering, and to become part of this galactic community um, that's out there. And that's actually coming here to visit us. But, you know, we are just so far unwilling to embrace because of this massive UFO cover-up. So I, I guess that's what I have to say. And I would encourage people again to go to the Sapphire Project website, go to YouTube and look at the Sapphire Project videos. I believe that um, they're going to be a big thing in the next coming years. Um, if you're a billionaire, consider you know investing in them. Do your due diligence and do your own research. And and I'm not an investment advisor or anything like that, but I would suggest you know they need funding. So if you want to do something great for the world, they're an organization you could look into that are doing something amazing um, that you could potentially invest in and benefit everyone so any more questions from me anything <laughs> at all because i don't mind continuing for another hour if you want to oh man well i guess just the only other thing i wanted to ask you about is when we're talking about the the evos you know you did mention a few yes this the sapphire project we can support them but you did mention a few people that have devices right now like i was trying to look up just rudimentarily the hydrogen inhalation generator. There's a couple of places out there selling stuff like that. There's George Wiseman's Brown's gas unit. Are there other things that you've seen that are maybe not so known about that you can actually purchase today that you think have credible applications, mainly for our own health or supercharging our water? Well, um, there is many companies that sell HHO generators and or Brown's gas generators, and that Brown's gas will contain a certain percentage of electrically expanded water, which will contain um, extra electrons um, or EVOs, and you can breathe that in. You can um, drink water. It's been bubbled through. Of course, before you do anything like that, do your own due diligence. I'm not a medical doctor. I'm not giving medical advice, so I have to put that disclaimer in there you know, consult with your physician, all of that first. But there are um, applications for HHO and Brown's Gas for Health. Um, when it comes to health in general, another thing I will just mention, um, the anti-aging field is really exploding right now. That's one field of science that is advancing. But with the EVO knowledge and the reality of the ether and the scalar and vector potentials, it's only going to accelerate even further. There's a number of anti-aging drugs in the very early stages of development right now um, that could benefit people in tremendous ways. There's senolytic drugs, which are drugs that kill off senetic, excuse me, um, senescent cells in the body that have stopped dividing that basically increase inflammation and send out um, carriers the nearby cells that start to change their genetic expression in a negative way so these drugs can kill the senescent cells 
um, and allowed them to be replaced with healthy cells to improve the health of an organism or an animal. And this is, I believe, in some human trials. And there's um, other things being developed, advanced glycation end product breakers, advanced glycation end products are inappropriately um, produced protein sugar bonds that accumulate in your body because you run off sugar. And over time, these sugars will bond with proteins in your body and it creates the best way to describe it is a gum that accumulates in your cells and your tissues and your organs. They're working on drugs that can break them apart. We already have a couple, but they're not super effective because of the fact they're not targeting the um, prime advanced glycation end product that accumulates in humans the most called glucosepain. Glucosepain is um, the advanced glycation end product that um, we have more than any other, but they're working on breakers that can break it up as well. They're working on all sorts of stem cell therapies. They're working on epigenetic therapies where they're not actually genetically engineering your cells, but they're genetically engineering your epigenome, which means how your cells are expressed. And in animals, they have reversed the aging process doing that. They are developing simple drugs that humans could take that could reverse the aging process. They are working on using CRISPR technology. That's an acronym for a type of genetic engineering technology, which can very cleanly and precisely remove or add genes from your genome. It can even be so precise it can um, repair like single letters of DNA. Um, tiny, tiny little portions of your DNA. I forgot what they're called, but it can work extremely precisely, like laser precision. Um, and they're using this now for therapies. Like if you have a genetic defect in your body, they could fix it. Maybe, for example, sickle cell anemia, they could repair um, the DNA error that produces that. Um, there's all kinds of therapies coming out that could benefit people. Um, so that's another area that I would say people should look into. And I could talk all night about different supplements and vitamins that are beneficial, but we don't have time for that. Any other questions about any other areas, please keep shooting them out. I'm enjoying this. This is fun. Man, uh, that pretty much runs the gamut of everything we had on our outline and everything I had planned to ask you about. The only section we didn't touch on really was the suppression of all this stuff. but. I mean, I didn't ask you questions about that, but you definitely told us where you think that is coming from. I'm curious if you think there's any suppression from the entities themselves. What's their agenda when they abduct people? What are they actually doing, do you think? Are they circumventing our own government, having direct experience with individuals? You know, do they want to stay in secret? Well, again, we cannot lump them all together. I believe there's multiple species visiting Earth and they all have different agendas. And there may be some species that have lived on Earth for a very long time, perhaps underground or under the ocean. Um, the Earth is a big place. And with this technology, you can phase right through matter. You can travel through matter if you want to, because most of matter is just empty space. A lot of people don't realize that. Um, so they could they could have bases. They could, they could have had bases on Earth for millions of years underneath the ocean if they wanted to, just as an example. I'm not saying that exists necessarily, but it's just another plausible possibility. Um, and so I believe there's many different types of extraterrestrials. They all have different agendas. Some of them may have similar agendas. 
there could be different federations or alliances in space of different species. I'm a Star Trek fan, so I like to think there's different types of federations in the galaxy um, where aliens cooperate um, for mutual benefit. Um, but we just don't know. Now, there's certain species of aliens that it seems like they are abducting people. They are doing genetic manipulation um, or at least manipulating the epigenome. Um, they are implanting people with implants um, and they are showing them sometimes visions of or projections. I believe this is technological, um, how they produce these projections of you know future disasters they might be warning humans that we are damaging our planet we are destroying the environment and so forth um so they may have a negative agenda or it might not might not be really negative it could be that we're just a petri dish to them or we're lower on the evolutionary scale to them or the evolutionary ladder so that they're just trying to guide us in the right direction but it just they may not have the same morals that we do or maybe they do. From another perspective, we capture animals in the wild and we perform medical examinations. We take blood samples. We um, tag them and we put them back in the wild and we monitor them. So some ETs that are um, have a different set of morality than we do may just consider us like an advanced form of animal. And they are doing the same thing, monitoring us. Um, I don't think that there is some grand conspiracy where like there is a treaty made between the government and the aliens, you know, that they could abduct so many people a year, but that treaty was broken. I mean, it's plausible, but I don't think it's likely. I think there's just different species with different agendas and there's probably multiple species that are coming here to take a look <laughs> and see what's going on because um, I hate to say it, we're probably – um, although there could be worse civilizations in the galaxy, and there's probably somewhere there is, um, we're a very irrational species. We're a very warfaring species. We have very few differences between our, our races, but we fight each other and we kill each other. And we have so many resources on this beautiful planet, but we waste them. We spend so much money on the military that we could be spending um, to help people to develop these exotic technologies, to um, restore our environment. But instead, we just want to fight each other and kill each other. And it's absolutely ridiculous. And I I'm, I mean, I would probably describe Earth as a hell planet. It's the only way I can describe it. It's a planet that probably just startles a lot of these alien species because they can't believe how irrational we are. Um, we're insane what we're doing right now. I mean, even our political system is insane. Our mainstream science is insane because this EVO technology, if Tesla would have been allowed to continue his research with proper funding, um, you know, he died, broke poor in a slummy hotel room. But if he had actually had his research sponsored, because everybody knew he was brilliant, but if he had had his work sponsored, who knows what kind of civilization we could live in right now. Um, but instead, he had all these enemies that were always trying to destroy him because of these corporate interests. So our whole economic system is screwed up. Everything on this planet is backwards. And, uh, and I really think that ETs are face palming 
all the time while they listen into their broadcast. And when they jack into their internet, which I think they really probably can do, they're probably like, I couldn't believe they could do that. You know, they just are probably saying all the time to each other, these humans, are they ever going to learn? Um, so, you know, we have a lot to prove to the galactic community as a civilization and as a species. And the beginning of that, the first thing, in my opinion, is ending the UFO cover-up. And with that, we need to start developing this EVO technology, um, like what the Sapphire Project is doing, um, but for the purpose of reaching a level of post-scarcity where we don't have millions and billions of people dying of starvation every single year on this planet. Um, we need to do better than that. And as a Christian, I think we have an obligation to do better than that. If we have the technology, if we have the resources, if we have the tools, which we do have um, with these exotic technologies, we must use them to benefit our species as a whole instead of just letting so many people needlessly suffer. Um, I just could go on and on about that, but I won't. Well, cheers, man. This has been a, a real great time. We've just hit three hours and uh, I know my editor is already going to be a little overwhelmed when this hits his inbox, but man, I am just so thankful that Richard Dolan could connect us. I'm humbled and honored that you were willing to record an interview with me. And I really just stayed out of your way because so much of this is over my head, but thanks so much for sharing. No problem. I'm very thankful for the chance to be interviewed by you. I've enjoyed this and thank you again. Thank you. Take care. Holy plasma paradigm shift, Batman. Wow. Three hours of Evo greatness with the man who knows the plan, Kosh himself, and maybe some of you Babylon 5 folks get that choice in nickname there. But I am so happy we got this done. I, of course, have to thank Richard Dolan again. He was the bridge that made it possible and as knowledgeable and passionate about this info as Kosh is. He was a little on the fence about doing an interview. And now that it's done, I thought it went great. There are parts that get a little bit technical, but I'm hoping that there are people out there who are very into these topics and maybe had a few gaps in their understanding that hopefully Kosh filled in. The appeal of some topics on this show can be wider than others, but given our talk here and there about self-organizing plasmas, I think an interview like this gives us the best understanding we could have. And this is a pretty advanced and very niche topic, so I just think it's kind of cool for us to all have that in our headspace. And maybe there's a dozen or so people out there that might actually use this information. I'd be curious to hear what Shaman Janir thinks of this, because he really is the one who got me onto these threads in the first place. And these things like ether physics and alchemical sciences, they do connect to everything. Because these things get to the heart of reality's structure and what's really possible and what life is really supposed to be like. So I'm not surprised that Kosh dove into his religious beliefs a little bit. And I don't ever want to be rude to a person who is giving us their time, especially on something so highly niche. And so, to each their own when it comes to that stuff. But 
It's also just funny how sometimes material comes from a place you wouldn't expect. And I would say a fundamentalist Christian is not the person that I thought was going to school me harder than I've ever been schooled on plasma dynamics and their role in alternative energy devices. The Lord works in mysterious ways, right? But he is so on point with the science behind EVOs that it's hard to believe that he's not seasoned at giving interviews on the subject. And he speaks so methodically and fluidly on this subject that it's impressive because I find it to be pretty tricky language, personally. And as interesting and unique as that first half is in the Plus show, we got into exotic energy use in the ancient world, how the spoon-bending phenomenon might relate to all of this. We talked about evos in biology, evos in spirituality. And Kasha's analysis of the Admiral Thomas Wilson document that kind of connects him and Richard Dolan. All good stuff if you ask me. Become a Plus member if you haven't already. Lots of new signups after the last show with Dr. Andy Kaufman, so thank you for that and welcome to the club. I hope you stick around. But I will say it was also nice to get a break from virus talk for a little while. And I guess I should also say that even though this is the fifth show of the month, we are going to have a sixth, because I talked to Del Bigtree again the other day, and it was just so good, I just can't sit on it until the first. News is just moving too fast, and so, oh well, a little more work for me, but it's all good. As I said, there are a lot of new plus people doing the whole seven-day trial, so maybe I can squeeze them in something nice, but I do hope that you stick around for at least a month. Back in the old world, tipping a waiter eight bucks was really no big deal. Maybe you will tip me eight bucks for all these shows. Help me help you. But anyway, also in higher side news, the next joint session is going to be 422. We have a nice countdown clock on the website now. But get the link there and join me at 7 p.m. Pacific this Wednesday, and we'll get into it. I'm curious how this current climate is affecting our people and just what you guys are seeing in your particular slice of the woods. So I do look forward to it. And for now, I'm getting out of here. Your move, Evo engineers, secret science suppressors, and plasma beans from the ethereal realm. Your fucking move. Oh no, you see. The world isn't random, it's attached to puppet strings Control over everything The nine to five is trying to steal ya Now don't that job seem silly? Hello, can you hear me? Or should I play back recordings? Some spike agency Wish we were younger And free I'll be thankful when it's all exposed The vast conspiracy There's such a difference Between us And the damn
Time. 